Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafzal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So today we continue our series of um, our Future Leaders Network and really thinking about uh, leaders of the future. So today we have prominent neuroscientist Pascal Kaufman. Uh, so Pascal, welcome. I'm always pleased to be here. So, um, Pascal, uh, maybe I can do a bit more of a introduction. So, uh, um, you're on the Hall of Fame of Digital Leaders for 2022 and 2021, a top digital leader in the category of tech leader for 2020, 2019, and 2018 um, from Biolance Business. So, Tell me, Pascal, how on earth do you think you got these accolades? <laughs> well, yeah, this is a question I, I often ask myself as well, right? Uh, because I, I don't particularly like the term digital, because yeah. digital means zero and one. <laughs> and as a brain researcher, I know that the brain is everything else in zero and one. So, uh, yeah, not so sure how happy I am with these uh, accolades. Yeah. Well, uh, absolutely. So, uh, Pascal, maybe maybe just kind of kick off the the discussion. Do you want to give us a little bit about your background, how how you started your journey around sort of artificial intelligence and, uh, and um, you know, how you landed up with, uh, with Mindfire today? Yes, uh, also a good question, right? So I, I have an ancient Greek uh, background. I studied Latin like old languages and I was not able to speak a single word in English. And when I was at university in, in Switzerland at ATH Zurich, I had a very hard time understanding what the professor was uh, teaching us. So I had to go uh, to the US to study English, to learn English. And then I learned about crazy Frankenstein experiments where researchers connected living brains in dishes with robots. I instantly uh, liked, uh, of course, these experiments. And then I applied and I got in into Chicago Medical School at uh, Northwest University. And there I connected uh, living brains uh, with robots. It was super interesting working at the intersection of so many sciences. And then you really get to know what is known and what is unknown about the brain. And this also caught then uh, artificial intelligence was a big, big topic already there. And yeah, so 20 years later, it's still a hot topic, artificial intelligence. And I learned that you have no chance to crack the brain code to understand the brain as one single brain. So as a, as a human researcher, you have a very hard time understanding uh, uh, all these complexities uh, within the brain. So what Mindfire is doing is we are connecting hundreds of thousands smart people in AI and artificial intelligence to create a kind of a super organism. So by uniting so many smart people around the globe that you actually can crack the brain, you can actually crack the brain code. This is what we're doing with Mindfire. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that in, in a second because I think it's super fascinating what you're doing and very unique to Switzerland as well, right, in terms of the heritage and the, and the history. But uh, before we do that, I, I think what I found quite interesting when I was, you know, obviously we've spoken before, but also thinking about your history, you've done many different things, right? You've been in sales, you then, uh, you know, uh, uh, learned, I would say, some skills that very few people have in your, you know, in your profession. Uh, and also you then set up uh, Starmind and maybe talk us a little bit about your kind of sales history 
and then how that connects with with what you did with Starmind, and then and then we could talk about Mindfire. So the company before Mindfire is called Starmind, and it really emerged out of these experiments at the Chicago Medical School because I needed to connect those living brains to machines and I had no clue regarding computers, no clue regarding robots. And I looked around me and um, was surrounded by all those top shot researchers. And I calculated how many years would I need to spend to read uh, science publications until I had all the know-how that I really need. And the result was until 64 years old. So until I was 64 years, I would have needed to re to, re to read like uh, research publications. And then the idea came up, well, why not doing it a little bit more efficiently? Why not building a huge artificial brain? And what we did in the year 2001 is we united several hundred thousand uh, scientists. We discovered them by um, checking out the publications. And then we did a matching, like the names of these researchers with what they published. And then you had a huge phone book. And an algorithm was able to, when you ask the question, to extract the topic of the question and automatically identify the three leading researchers in every um, topic you can imagine. And these people were then automatically like um, alerted and say, hey, would you know the solution? And if these three identified top short researchers did not start to type in a, a solution within like three minutes, the next three experts have been identified. And out of this idea of a super fast problem solving engine, a company emerged called Starmind. And Starmind is the same approach, but for companies. So within a huge company with several hundred thousand employees, or also small companies, you can just ask a question. And the question is autonomously allocated to the best fitting employee within that company. And this is the company Starmind. Um, it's doing very well in uh, over 100 countries worldwide. It's in use. And uh, it's based in Switzerland. And this was also one of the foundations of the Mindfire company that followed later. Mm. And then in terms of that sort of, which is, again, just absolutely fascinating. Um, certainly, in a company like EFG, it's always very difficult to know the exact matter expert in, uh, in the organization. Obviously, much smaller than the several hundred thousand <laughs> companies that, uh, or people that may be in some of the larger companies. Um, but uh, you know, still very much uh, you know important. Um, can I ask how do you or how does Starmine actually being able to you know, fit you know find a profile of say a person in a particular topic? How does it get the get the information in the first place? How does it need to be organized for the algorithms to be able to 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 connect the dots? Yeah, I think that's a very essential question. How do you find the right expert for the right question, right? And the thing is, if you do self-declaration saying, hey, please fill in a questionnaire, where are your skills and expertise? There are always people that are overselling their skills or underselling, or there are people that actually missed that there is actually such a questionnaire, right? And it's very cumbersome to keep that up to date. So Starmind does it a little bit differently. And Starmind is actually finding out and uh, asking, like, who do you know who could solve a question? So if I got a question, I would say, well, you have to add, you have to talk to Moose, or you have to talk to Francesco Luigi. And then the algorithm uh, thinks, okay, Pascal did this recommendation. Why not sending a question to Moose? And if a person like you does not reply to that question, the algorithm uh, remembers, oh, he might be a superstar, but he doesn't share his know-how. 
So maybe I shouldn't uh, talk again in the future with most or, or target him when a, when a question is there. And for about 100% of employees, about 50-60% are willing to share the know-how instantly because you can actually help another employee with your know-how. And then another thing is the algorithm actually notices when you are uh, typing in a solution and then you get um, stars, three stars, four stars, five stars, and then the algorithm verifies is it really um, valid what most wrote? And then when you get a lot of five stars, when you have other experts saying this is a very valid solution, it kind of strengthens the connection between most and a certain topic. So this is how StoryMind works. Uh, it's kind of self-learning neural networks in the background uh, where the connections between you and topics are enforced or weakened depending on whether or not you're solving them or not. So this is uh, how it works. Mm -hmm. Like a baby brain in a company, which is uh, learning who knows what. Yeah, that's uh, very, very... And how quickly, for example, in an organization of, I don't know, say 100,000 people, how quickly does the algorithm, you know, uh, be able to sort of get to that final destination and obviously never gets to the final destination, but how quickly does it become effective? So you could as well ask about the so-called cold start problem. Assume an organization with 100,000 employees says, now we are using StarMind. How should you know from day one who knows what? I mean, you can imagine if, if all the know-how profiles were known, then it kind of works, right? But how do you get to that? And how long does it take? And how we do that in the very first days, or how we did that uh, when we started the company, we sent around one email to, let's say, 5,000 employees in the same unit and say, hey, guys, you don't have to solve these problems, but in this email, there are five questions. Could you just let me know who could solve question number one? And then he would say, oh, come on, question number one, I would also turn to Luigi. He would be the expert. Question number two, well, I could even solve it myself. Question number three, well, you should talk to Susan, but she doesn't work anymore in our team. She works in our team. So with this initial mapping, uh, you kind of learn who could solve which kind of question. And the five, six, seven people independently said it's actually Susan. One day, the baby brain, which has a lot of know-how, sends a question to Susan. And if then Susan says, whoa, I'm not the right expert, you should talk to Heidi, for example, then the system says, how much of an expert must an Heidi be? And we can calculate about 10 to 12 weeks until you have solution rates in the range of 90, 95%. Wow. So whenever you fire a question to that brain, in about 90 to 95% of all questions, you find someone who can solve the question. And then all solutions are stored in that so-called company brain. And more and more, there are no questions that have not yet been asked. And only in a few uh, occasions, actually employees are triggered to say, hey, could you solve, could you solve? But in most cases, it's actually documented then in the company brain. Mm. So about 10 to 12 weeks is the answer. Mm. Oh, excellent. That's very, very impressive. So how have you now used, obviously, in terms of what you're doing today in terms of Mindfire, which, you know, using very similar concepts in terms of what you, what you developed? Uh, and, you know, what is your ultimate goal uh, at Mindfire? The ultimate goal is to win the race for artificial intelligence. It's a huge race ongoing these days. They often talk about it will be won by China or it will be won by a large tech company. Europe actually has no say in that. Actually, Europe has so many countries, so many languages. It's very hard to, um, to get a, table, a seat on the table. 
But we think with, with MindFire, when we unite hundreds of thousands of uh, smart people in AI, we can actually build the largest virtual AI lab in the world. So they're not physically located in Switzerland, in Davos, but in the virtual space, the virtual reality, you have, we have powerful AI labs. So the goal is to be the largest AI lab in the world by means of how many hours are spent per week for AI research and how many people are contributing and to use that new insights, to use this technology to tackle the most relevant problems on earth. That is our goal, to have a third way, not only AI for government or AI for large tech company, but AI for the people. That is what we are doing at MindFire. So maybe you can describe, you know, how do you source uh, these experts uh, around the world and how do you bring them together in Davos? <laughs> so I hunt for smart people, smart creative people for more than 20 years. And over the years, we developed schemes and approaches how to identify a smart person, right? So a smart person is not necessarily someone uh, who studies at the university, but a smart person is someone who can solve problems or who can think out of the box or develops completely new concepts. How do we do that? We do it mostly by means of gaming. And if I wanted to get to know who, who Moss is, for example, I can ask you for hours fancy questions, but actually I still have no clue who you actually are. But if I battled against you, if I had a fight against you, it could be a sports competition, it could also be a gaming competition, I get to learn about most quite a lot of things. How fair are you? How much of a team player are you? So by means of, of challenges that we pose, we can extract and then select for certain skills and talents that we are looking for. So it's mostly about challenges and competitions. And uh, a few months ago, we just broke a world record in artificial intelligence. And the person behind who actually handed in the winning algorithm was a super interesting person. So we instantly hired that person on the spot. So by means of these challenges, we filter and screen for outstanding people around the globe. And we don't care about the degree uh, that person has. We just care about whether or not she's able or he's able to solve a certain problem. Mm. So give me an example of a problem to solve. <laughs> well, um, you can uh, check out the website uh, of <laughs> Lab42, which is an institute uh, and these uh, are very visual uh, competitions. There is actually a game in the, in the game um, in the gaming store where you have to um, rescue human beings. So uh, an apartment is on fire and the only way you are able to solve, to, to rescue those human beings is by means of robots. And you need to program those robots in a very fast, very efficient way. And then you click play. And then if the robot actually is able to rescue the, the, the people, then you go to the next uh, level two, three or four. And we learn how do these people uh, program? How are they on the stress? Uh, maybe they should teamwork. How do they behave in, in a team? So these are challenges that we throw at people, but also like super fancy IQ tests. Although I don't like IQ tests at all, there are a few patterns, a few skills you can select for. So these kind of tests, yeah. And maybe it's a third one. We also love essays. Sometimes we are posting a really tough question. For example, um, how would you develop um, a, a, an algorithm which is able to form a swarm? And this swarm would be able to operate a robot. How would you develop such a single individual agent? And then people write essays 
And then based on these ACs, we also can uh, get to the talent. Well, that's amazing. So um, how many games do you actually have out there at any given time? Well, actually, there are thousands of challenges that we have out there in the context of Orkoton. It's called Orkoton. It's one of the few recognized tests to, to um, quantify intelligence, their human level intelligence. There are hundreds of thousands of different little tests and uh, you can tackle them as a 10-year-old, as a 20-year-old, as a 90-year-old person. Uh, so for everyone, there are tests. And um, yeah, so we have several thousands of these tests online. Wow, amazing. And you can just go through and just choose the one that you would like. Exactly. Yeah. And depending on what you are choosing, we can actually infer a lot about you as a person. Of course. What yeah. kind? Are you more the creative person? Are you more the analytic person? Are you the team player? Are you the isolated, uh, super intelligent genius? So these are the facets that we are uh, observing then. So uh, any any tricks of the trade that I can learn, for example, any sort of budding fund managers or investment managers I could hire? <laughs> I think um, people often are attracted by other people. Right. And when you have already a critical density of interesting people in your team, it's much easier to attract new interesting people. Right. Also, as a hiring manager, I think you need to be an evangelist of your company. I mean, in, in your case, you have an easy play, right? Because you are a super fascinating person. But if you were like a boring person <laughs> with, with, with little social skills, and uh, then I think you have a very hard time to attract interesting people. Very interesting. I guess there's, you know, uh, you know, there's always a case where, you know, say good organizations attract good talent, right? And, and that's how they, they uh, survive and thrive. True, yeah. But the other is also true. Like if you're a failing organization, you have no ambitious goals, uh, the best people are leaving your company, it gets harder and harder to keep talent. Mm. And often the best people you lose first. Yeah, yeah no, it's very, very well spoken. So uh, again, super fascinating. So I certainly, uh, I'd encourage the listeners to go and play some games on Mindfire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, all are invited and it's free. Yeah. <laughs> and you can actually earn up to 70,000 US dollars if you crack certain riddles. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, how do you then sort of maybe last question on this and then uh, we can go to the AI topic, but how do you, you know, take an algorithm that that's solved a or found a solution? How do you monetize that going forward? Ultimately, that's the ultimate um, company, right? If you really have human level AI, you can build the perfect personal assistant, like a guardian angel that actually could give the interview here. Uh, um, an algorithm that looks like Pascal, speaks like Pascal, but it's much smarter than Pascal, has much better English, uh, can speak in all the kind of languages. So a virtual perfect employee you can build with human level AI. You would never see that person in, real, uh, in the real world because it's just an algorithm, but that person could solve everything you could do as a white collar employee. So everything that can be done in front of the computer, that algorithm is able to, to do. And in particular, we would monetize it by cutting edge research. The first thing that we would revolutionize is research. It can't be that people like me need to read the research papers until they are 64 years old, just to have one year where you can contribute something new to science. I mean, that's really not so efficient. So AI should be monetized by put pushing the boundaries of research. Uh, 
absolutely fascinating and uh thank you very much for sharing that um i think it's uh super interesting and uh you know uh we and i'm sure our listeners are going to watch that progress very very uh very very carefully um so let's talk about um you know ai and obviously it's a very generalized term you know these days um there are i guess two or three sort of key things that everyone is concerned by today and then obviously what people are concerned about you know for the future uh maybe if we tackle the today issue and in today's world um everybody's really focused on can i get nvidia gpus to be able to 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 have kind of the best chips to train my algorithm to to get to where i will need to get to you're even having sort of you know um uh certain private equity firms buying the chips and then offering incubations for for smaller players how do you how do you feel about this sort of race to get the fastest and the best technology uh and uh, you know ultimately what is the problem um that these companies are going to face in the future well you know when it when we talk about the definition of artificial intelligence i think it's important to note that uh data is a uh, or big data is kind of the opposite of intelligence so if you have all the data for a problem to solve you don't need intelligence at all so in a sense in a pocket calculator all the data how to solve these mathematical problems that you're facing is already solved by means of a uh, very interesting wiring and circuitry within the pocket calculator so intelligence is actually when you have not they uh, not enough data so the notion that the brain might be a big data machine has actually thrown us back for decades. And so as long as people have the impression between our ears is sitting a supercomputer that you just have to uh, uh, do a little bit faster and then all of a sudden you have intelligence, I think we will never ever be able to crack the brain code or to create human level AI. Therefore, I'm a little bit skeptical when you mention data in the context of intelligence because intelligence is has nothing to do with big data. So when you need 300 million pictures of cats, for example, in order to say it's a cat, a horse, or a cow, I don't find it so smart or so intelligent. It would actually be much more about small data. So a little child, uh, a young child looks at one cat, cuddles the cat a little bit, and knows once and forever what a cat is. So the brain seems to be everything else in the big data engine. And therefore, um, of course, I love to talk about big data and about powerful supercomputers, but this has much more to do with uh, with, with uh, statistics, with very impressive statistics or with very um, powerful automation, but not with intelligence. And talking about automation, that's a huge business case. You can automate so many things, but automation is often stupid. So it's the same routine task again and again repeated and intelligence is actually breaking the laws, breaking the rules, bending a little bit what is known, uh, combining new things. This you can't tackle with big data. And therefore, we need to distinguish between intelligence and brute force computing or big data. So at the moment, I guess everybody's very much focused on the brute force and the data, very little on the intelligence part which is, uh, yes. I guess, your supposition. Although they all talk about AI, 
when they actually mean automation or statistics. Right. So automation statistics is dumb intelligence or no intelligence. And no then, intelligence, yeah. No intelligence. And then you've got sort of uh, intelligence. So how do you create the intelligence? Well, intelligence, that was actually the, the, big, the big challenge, right? How do we create artificial intelligence? How do we create uh, machines that uh, can be creative? That can that have maybe social skills, that may even have their own agenda, that may have a value system. It's non-solved issue. Therefore, hundreds of billions of US dollars are spent or have already been spent in AI. For the moon landing, they spent about 30 billion US dollars. For like the atomic bomb, about 40 or 50 billion. For AI, what we call AI today, hundreds of billions of dollars. And we don't yet know how to create AI. It's an unsolved um, uh, riddle. Of course, we have a few theories, but at the moment, no one knows. So we have obviously large language models, which are basically solving, a, I guess, a, a data problem, but it doesn't necessarily create intelligence, right? Which is your, which is, uh, you know, which is your point. Obviously, um, for low end, we'll call it low intelligence tasks, these models and big data can actually help a lot, right? Well, I'm a big fan of large language models. Um, I'm a big fan because it's a, it's a tool compute purely based on statistics that can be super powerful in accelerating science. So for example, you in an automated way, you can analyze every publication that is published every day. These are thousands of publications every day. And you can, by means of smart statistics or these large language models, you can combine them to new insights. Or you can extract the most interesting and new insights. And you can even reference with other papers uh, something that the human brain would not be able to do. So um, LLMs, I think, could be key to actually crack the brain code, to ultimately create human-level AI. Not because they are in itself so smart, but because they can be a powerful tool to accelerate sounds. Therefore, I'm a big fan of that, yeah. And how do you think, obviously, everyone's very excited about what this can do for, um, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry, for biotech industry, everything from, you know, ordering your McDonald's or your Coke, <laughs> you know, down to uh, replacing lawyers for basic NDAs or basic uh, um, sort of, uh, I, I guess, basic technical tasks that that really doesn't need huge amount of intelligence how do you think how do you see that evolve do you see that as maybe just the first step but there is a subsequent second and third step you know like we also talk about the so-called big disappointment because we always had the impression in order to replace lawyers or in order to replace certain other uh, uh, jobs you need to have human level ai but as it turns out you just need stupid statistics and you can get rid of so many jobs even creativity seems to be able, seems to be a, a mimicked with uh, with llms i mean there have been competitions where um, a diffusion model or alternative ai uh, approaches um, just outsmarted the most creative human painters so it's a huge disappointment that by means of statistics you can do away with so many jobs. So it has huge impacts of every job that requires routine or every job that you can put in rules. 
So whenever you, there is a rule behind, you can always build a machine that outsmarts the human being. And now, since the rise of LLMs, even conversations, you can actually outsmart <laughs> people. Yeah. And uh, we always thought, yeah, but you know, the language or having a, a smart conversation, this is something where you need in, to be intelligent. Actually, it turns out you just need to have a big record of past conversations and some fancy algorithm assembling these chunks to kind of new sentences and you're perfectly fine with the conversation. So yeah, I, I would predict that the, the law industry, in particular the law industry, will face tremendous challenges there, but also a lot of benefits, for example, to the pharmaceutical companies. So much research could be automated and accelerated. So I think LLMs is a must to adopt for almost every company. No, I completely agree with you on that. I think is and we're only just scratching the surface compared to where we will be in one, three, or even five years. I think then this is obviously moving, you know, super, super fast. Um, so then moving back to, you know, one of the I guess unanswered questions is the intelligence question, right? And, you know, the ultimate worry that maybe regulators today, governments and even futurists who dream, dreamt up Terminator and so on and so forth, you know, how long does it take for us to kind of get to that level if we ever get to that level? You know, it's always super embarrassing if I do predictions and then 10 years from now, they say, oh, come on, Pascal was so wrong, right? <laughs> um, but I would say the race for AI will be decided in this very decade. So between 2020 and 2029, um we can we can actually say who will win the race for AI. So there's so many signs. There's such a high density, so much money in the world that is invested into these topics that there must be an outcome after a few years in AI. And yeah, I would um, I would predict that in this decade we do um, significant breakthroughs, and then uh, the world could look completely differently. Yeah. I could be completely wrong, but this is at the moment my gut feeling that uh, it's out there. You kind of feel it, that uh, we are rather close. It's like the light bulb or like the first aircraft. They have been invented almost in parallel in the world. It was kind of obvious uh, given where the science was. So I think we are not so far away from significant breakthroughs, but I would also guess it is not related to the fast computers. It's related to completely new concepts where a, a talent like a, a little uh, Einstein, a little Michelangelo, Leonardo Vinci, or a Marie Curie comes up with. So, so many talents these days are attracted to the field of AI. There must be a breakthrough at some point in time, and I hope in this decade. Mm, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there will be. So, um, I've got sort of, there's hundreds of questions I could ask you, but there may be two or three ones that I think uh, um, I meaningful certainly for some of the next generation so if you're uh you know a 15 16 year old um or you know a a uh, you know 20 plus year old um what are you sort of thinking you know in career choices um you know what what advice should you be giving to somebody to stay ahead of the game that they're not sort of you know brain redundant in in 10 years time <laughs> I like the term brain redundant. <laughs> um, so assume we had the situation before 1903 when the first aircraft was built by the Brothers Bride. And you asked me, what does a young person need to study in order to be able to build 
an aircraft. I could have said, you need to study the birds. Or I could have said, well, you need to be excellent engineer. I would say these days, you need to be hungry, a hungry talent, a curious talent, an ambitious, brave talent, not fearing to ask questions no one else has asked before, because you have all the tools. You can actually build whatever you like. You can tackle whatever problem you like, but you need to be motivated and hungry to actually tackle such a problem. So I would invest heavily into the mindset of such a talent. Um, and, and this actually means, of course, you need to have know-how. Of course, you need to do your, your math and your basics. But I wouldn't recommend to say, oh, now you need to study the brain or now you need to program because programming can be done by the machines. Studying the brain, why doing that? I mean, you can read the research papers that come out the next few years, but you need to be you need to be a passionate person driven by a mission. So this is not an easy thing to teach. There are people that are boring and people that are um, lacking any sense, any purpose in life. So very hard to actually motivate them to do something. If you are passionate, if you can burn for something, then I think that's the, that's the key success factor in the future. Mm. You need to be able to burn for something, to be passionate about something. Mm. Find your passion. This is something I would recommend to a young person. Yeah, well, that's a very, very good point. It's, it's a good life advice uh, for sure. Um, now sort of thinking out, say, 10 years, you know, you and I discussed the other day, you know, the work week could be three or four days a week and the rest of the t time you would do something else, right? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not that pessimistic in terms of kind of jobs. It just means jobs we evolve and change, right? Uh, if we all have, you know, smart systems and, and AI to, to do the work that is mundane and then we can focus on the real high-quality parts. And high-quality is also then creativity right it's cooking food to taste right or there's experiences how how do you see the you know the sort of big secular winners in in you know in maybe the non-ai part you know um leisure or something like that that something else we, we have more time to do so when i asked uh, when i asked our talents what are you doing the entire day I often get the answer, they are gaming. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they are gamers, right? right? So there are hundreds of millions of game addicts in the world. And I mean, they are even addicted by a flat two-dimensional computer screen. Now imagine the addiction, the level of addiction, if you're in 3D, if you have these cyber glasses, cyber glasses on your head, if you're in virtual reality, I would predict that uh, in cyberspace, you can have a lot of fun and there is not so much need to spend your time in the biological world. Right. So this might sound horrible to, to, to some people, but at least what I see today, people spend so much time on boring 2D screens and surfaces. They don't even look out when it's like a sunny outside or even when candlelight dinners in a restaurant, you often see the two people that are falling in love or so uh, watching and monitoring their, their, their mobile devices and not even looking them into the eyes. So my prediction would be the gaming industry will benefit a lot. And the other thing is, the more boring your life is, the longer you like to live, I have the impression. <laughs> so the, the, the longevity sector is booming a lot. People don't want to die. 
So they spend a lot of time in their refrigerators or in doing like fancy uh, fitness and wellness. They even take in drugs just to live a little bit longer. So I think the entire longevity industry is also booming a lot these days. Maybe they want to live longer until they find something purposeful in their lives. I don't know. Mm. But I think gaming and longevity and health, these are the things that are booming a lot these days. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, maybe a bit of a personal question. Have you got the new Apple headset? <laughs> I was one of the, the people that ordered it first. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have it yet, but um, no, I'm a big fan and I usually have the latest gadgets, uh, but I'm quite happy actually, I must admit, with my Oculus that I have. Yeah. Um, so maybe I shouldn't say that publicly, but <laughs> actually it's, it's quite uh, uh, satisfying, uh, but I bet they will come out more and more, more, more products like yeah. that. Usually I buy the latest gadgets, I usually have them. Yeah. So uh, what is the latest gadget Obviously, you you you've uh, you've ordered the Vision Pro, but what's the latest gadget that you're excited about? Well, a gadget that I quite often use and that is still um, uh, seems to me unexpected is I have um, a hearing aid, uh, Mies Pascal, although I hear perfectly well, so I can tune my hearing aid to two hundred percent, so I can listen to conversations far away from me. <laughs> the other thing is also in my hearing aid there are students that are um, monitoring uh, or they're actually kind of uh, guarding angels of me and they are um, supplying me the information real time by me through my ears. Mm. And when I have a tough questions I cannot solve, these uh, helpers actually whisper to me the solutions. So these like uh, hearing aids I love because often people when they, they see that, oh, Pascal is hearing impaired. You better <laughs> don't ask him. But actually it's the other way around, right? So, uh, yeah, I love these gadgets. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I remember when we first met, um, you showed it to me, and uh, <laughs> and you you knew a remarkable amount about me, which I was really very very impressed. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have good people that are preparing me for tough conversations. Yeah, eh? absolutely. Well, Pascal, I we uh, our time is uh, is up. Uh, it was a absolutely first. A real pleasure, a real honor to uh, to spend some time with you. Um, uh, no doubt, I likewise, likewise, most always inspiring talking to you. No, it's it's really good fun, and uh, you know, wish you all the all the greatest of luck. Obviously, I'll be watching, and we'll be watching very carefully in terms of your progress. We're very excited about what you're doing, uh, and um, you know, no doubt, given what you've achieved so far in a relatively short space of time, that uh, you know. Uh, success further success should i say is just a stone throws away so uh, wish you all the best and um, we'll uh, no doubt catch up uh, in a little while to see how your how your predictions have been working <laughs> let's do that thanks a lot uh, most for taking time and greetings from switzerland huh? great thank you very much so that wraps us up uh, for for today on uh, beyond the benchmark of course uh, uh, do Go to that website, uh, Mindfire, um, and uh, find out what uh, Pascal is up to. And of course, if you have any questions, uh, just feel free to shoot them to me and I'll certainly uh, put you in touch. So with that, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. Mm -hmm.